Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple, and hard to believe it's already August. Where has the summer gone? Man, I'm so glad you decided to join us on the show. On today's show, this is a great little book. Fabian Nicieza wrote a book called The Self-Made Widow. Now, this in and of itself is cool, but the super cool is he's also known for not only his debut novel, which is Suburban Dicks, but also co-creator of Deadpool. Yep, he's a comic book hero of his own sort. In his own mind? Anyway, let's not waste any more time, and let's get to it with Fabian right here on The Thriller Zone. Greetings. Greetings. Can you hear me okay? I can. How about you on your end? I hear a dulcet radio tone coming from the other side of the microphone. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome. I wish... Out of some speaking voice like that. Before I go any further, Fabian, I got that part right, right? You did get that part right. So far, you're doing pretty good. I, hold on a second. Nisiesa. Very close. Um, that, that, if you're, are you in California? It might be yes. <laughs> the Spanish. It might be the Spanish speaking in you. Uh, it is Nisiesa in English. Nis, Nisiesa. 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 In Espanol, it's Fabian Nisiesa. Fabian Nisiesa. In English, it's Fabian Nisiesa. And in American, it's Fabian Nicunza. (laughs) (laughs) Can I just stick with Fabian? (laughs) You certainly can, but you feel free to pronounce it Fabian Nicunza if you were born in the United States. (laughs) Either way... You're on the Thriller Zone, and my name is David Temple. <laughs> is that t- team play, or is that? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, Templeale. Templeale, Templeale. Uh, <laughs> God. Well, happy Monday. That's better. Happy Monday, yes. So far, so good, except it is horrifically, disgustingly humid here on the East Coast, New Jersey. What part of Jersey? Uh, near Princeton area. Okay. Where the books are set. Where the books are set is is where I live. Of course. Yeah. It really made research very simple. <laughs> I did two tours of duty in Manhattan, and I had uh, I have several friends in the Jersey area, so I'm very familiar. And uh, let's see, I did a little stint at a, a QVC over in Westchester. Yeah, which is, QVC. Uh, yeah. Good old QVC studio. Is it even still there? Uh, oh, yeah, it's still there. I, did, there. I did several QVC shows back in the 90s, uh, uh, selling selling signed comics and, and all kinds of stuff on a, on a few different shows. Um, I got got my ass squeezed by Richard Simmons. It was wonderful. <laughs> it was like, it okay. was like the, the ultimate QVC experience. <laughs> 
Okay, wait a minute. Yeah, that that does top mine. All right, so I'm working as a host there for a short while, and I walk in, and it's uh, I'm inside my first week there, and Richard shows up, and he go and he shouts across the room, "Oh, look at you!" And he runs over and leaps in the air, expecting me, which I did, and I grabbed him, and I held him, and he put his arm around me, and gave me a kiss on the cheek, and it's so nice to meet you. So that, that was my you introduction. Got, you got. You got a much better Richard Simmons encounter than I did then. All he did is, is after I came off the set, because we ended our show and he was coming in, he ran up to me and hugged me and then just squeezed my ass. And and my wife was like, oh, look at Richard Simmons go. And, and I said, good luck. Good luck with your, with your show, Richard. And he said, thank you. You were wonderful. And then off he went. And that was yeah. it. That's it. What a wonderful human being he is. He is he is an absolutely interesting person who's done tremendous amounts. And I I I just think it's it's kind of the, the the empires he built in his day were were pretty fascinating because they really they really broke down tremendous barriers. Um, yes, you know uh, among among people in this country who would think otherwise of of those kinds of you know yes. antics in quotation marks. You know, and I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. Well, and coming from a radio background, I'm, I love me some antics. So you can't, you can't over antic me. You can't. Yeah, no, you you gotta, you gotta go. Look, he he was, he was a really smart showman and salesman, right? Oh, oh yeah. And it's really hard to do that. And it's really hard to maintain that. Um, And then, and not, and then increase it. Like it just, you know, it, it was, it was good for its time. Yes. Now, now social media has kind of put a bit of a damper on that because way too many people um, try to be that and and don't have that level of skill, you know, or, or presentability, that savvy, you know. It's it's the yeah, it's the innate savviness of being genuine and a professional performer yes. simultaneously yep. because yep. you can be phony yep. and you can be a professional. But to and you can be really uh, from coming from the heart, but he was a, a trifecta of all of that. Yep. Yeah. Yep. yep. For sure. All right. Listen. First of all, we're going to be talking about this beautiful book. Look at this, the self-made this. widow. What? Yeah. yeah uh, this one's, uh, oh yeah. I want to listen. This one. This one came first. This one came oh yeah. Left right. <laughs> And suburban dicks, I'm assuming we're gonna we're gonna get to this one, but uh, suburban dicks is I'm guessing detect uh, detectives. You're right. Yes. They yeah. Are. yeah. They okay. Are, good. They are suburban detectives, but they're both main characters are kind of assholes too. So I I, I I I came up with the title thirty years ago almost. You know. Um. So so it, it's been in my head that way for a very long time. At the time I came up with it, the term dicks for detectives was already antiquated but it had been used in the 70s and 80s on tv shows and things like that it wasn't just the province of 30s and 40s movies and books you know um but i've aged out of that already so now the entire generation of people in their 30s even their 40s certainly their 20s don't understand the reference no it, 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 it was a bit of a concern on my part and i was always willing to change the title uh, the publisher was completely fine with it. They, they thought it really worked and, and more power to them. They put it out with that title, you know, um, so well, <laughs> didn't stop it from getting option for TV development. The title, the title worked for a lot of people because they got it. Um, maybe the coarsening of our language in, in, in public 
uh, forums has also helped a bit because now it's almost innocuous in a way. It's 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 a it's it's not such a scandalous word to use. No, now you meet someone and you go, "Hey, dude, don't be a dick." Okay, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's kind of <laughs> like a don't. Well, there's another word that I, but I have a lot of lady listeners and they wouldn't like that <laughs> yeah. phrase, but there's that phrase too. Um, don't be an ass. Don't be an don't ass. Be an ass. Yeah, don't be don't a, be, which comes from don't be a jackass because jackasses right. were ornery and would always kick you when you least expect it and things like that. Yeah. See, look at you. We're getting so much history here in the green room before here. we even get the show going. <laughs> Forget about it, Fabian. I, what am I talking about? <laughs> The minute we go live, or the minute we start recording, I'm just going to like, like go, no, huh? <laughs> I'll have nothing to say. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to put it really good, dude. I yes. wrote this book some time ago, and I'm really excited about it. You should read it, I too. Did. Yeah. Actually, I actually did write it some time ago. It feels like forever now. Well, welcome to the Thriller Zone. Fabian. And I, I got to tell you, I, I want to start out with this just because I'm an enormous fan. Uh, yes, I'm a fan of The Self-Made Widow, but I'm a fan of Deadpool. All right. And when I found out that you're co-creator of that, right? Yes, sir. All right. When I found out that, I told my wife and she's like, what? I'm like, yeah, because that's we were talking about this last night. I, I could watch Deadpool pull over and over and over. And I, it's one of the few of those, you know, superhero kind of movies I never get tired of. And I, I know it's an amalgamation of your your craftsmanship and the delivery and um, channeling done by Ryan Reynolds, because it's just it's yeah. a perfect and storm. It's it's it was I, I love the first movie. It was a real treat to watch it um because i felt like they completely nailed it and it's a difficult character to do right and, and what i like most about it is i didn't just see myself reflected up there um but i saw other writers who've worked on the character over the last 30 years and and in some cases entire an entire scene was lifted out of a comic book by by another creative team and that's validation for the for the people who did, have done good work on the character over the years. Um, I, look, I called Ryan Reynolds in my casting choice in 2004, okay? <laughs> because you can look it up online, Google it. The, the second issue of a comic book I was writing called Cable and Deadpool, uh, which was kind of a buddy book with the two characters in it. Um, in the second issue, he tears off his mask and he describes himself as looking like Ryan Reynolds crossed with a Sharpay. <laughs> and, and 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 Ryan was told about that, and Ryan has started was aware of the character, but really started following the character as a, as a result of that, and saw, hey, this I could really play this character, I could do justice to this character, and yeah. and I, and I knew he could, and I'm glad it took ten years or more for the movie to get made because he needed to age up a little bit. He was a little too young when I originally did the casting choice in my brain. And this is a question now. It, it, correct me if I'm wrong. He, I read or watched him somewhere talk about the fact that it took him ten years to shop this thing. That 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 he so believed in it, and he couldn't get anybody to believe in it as well. Is that? Yeah. What happened is he agreed to guest uh, to be a supporting uh, character in the first Wolverine movie that Hugh Jackman made, which I believe was 2008. Um, he played Wade Wilson as a mercenary uh, before he becomes Deadpool. And then in the course of the third act of the movie, they actually transitioned him into an awful version of Deadpool, which 
the fans just despised and and derided. They actually they actually sewed the character's mouth shut in the movie. So they they actually tried to sell you in the third act of the Wolverine movie a Deadpool with who can't talk, which was just I mean it's the often you'll see Hollywood make choices that you just you just scratch your head and you say what what you know how clueless are you about the the, the DNA of a character you know yeah. um and and what do you think is his the audience that you're selling this to predominantly in order to get word of mouth to get a non-comics audience interested in it what do you think <laughs> that audience is going to say when you reveal a Deadpool with his mouth sewn shut so yeah. anyway that Ryan had done that specifically because he wanted to spin the character off into his own franchise. And a script was written, I believe, around 2010 that basically sat on a shelf at Fox for five years. They didn't want to make it because the Wolverine Origins movie hadn't been a, a tremendous success and the reaction to the character hadn't been positive. And you're like, no kidding, you know? Um, but the script sat for a while until um, a, a, a mysterious leak of um of some uh vfx footage that had ryan playing the character uh, his voice over the vfx footage made the rounds on the internet and everybody got excited about it combining with the increased success of the marvel movies made fox studios at that time say okay we're gonna green light it but if you want it to be rated r your budget's gonna be next to nothing and the budget was by hollywood standards next to nothing and and ryan and his crew and the the director Tim Miller and and um, Paul Wernick and Rhett Reese, the writers, all said we're going to make this work, and they absolutely did because two movies later, it's earned over 1.5 billion, I think, at the box office, and, and and its combined production budget on the two movies, I think, was somewhere around 200 million or so. Yeah, um, you've uh, you're so actually beating me to the punch because I was pulling those numbers up, and I'm like, when you can make when a movie can make that kind of money, because yeah. really, I'm going to go back to an earlier comment that you made that Hollywood Hollywood always often can have its head up its ass, and uh, but when when you start seeing receipts like that, they go, oh, this is the best thing ever. We need to do this again and again and again and again and again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and the the thing that Ryan understood, and um, and he imparted that on Paul and Rhett, the the writers, and he imparted that on Tim Miller, the director, that that it's not just the humor and the the cursing and the scatological incidents, and it's not just the violence and the over the top action. That that the underlying foundation of the character is 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 tragedy, and yeah. and he's sacrificed his humanity in order to live. And he is now living with his humanity compromised. And and they got that, which makes a huge difference in how you present the character, because it, it creates such a rooting interest on the part of the audience that you forgive him the things he does that, you know, are blatantly wrong. You know, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and 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 they did a good job with it. I, I hope that um, if they're planning a third movie now, I don't know when it's going to be released, but they're planning a third movie now that'll come out through Marvel Studios. And, and hopefully they're all smart enough to retain all the things that that, that give it the the, give the property its strength. Yeah, because you, that's a great point. Because a lot of times, what Hollywood will do is they'll like right when something is going well, they'll also. And I'm not here to bash Hollywood because I play in that sandbox. But mm -hmm. let's be realistic. Yeah. But yeah. Som sometimes they'll turn a screw that goes. Wait a minute. Why, why did you, why did you mess with a really good thing? Why did you add an ingredient in the batch that just makes the flavor different? So yeah, I, I hope they and, don't do that. 
I hope they don't either. I look, I my preference would be that they make one new movie a year because I get a check every time they make a movie. So yeah. if they feel like, you know, if they feel like releasing a new Deadpool movie every year, quality be damned, I'm going to get the same amount on the <laughs> check, whether it's a good movie or a bad movie. So by all means, have at it, boys. Ah, <laughs> uh, capitalism at its finest. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Before sure. we let's, I, I want to get to your books, but I also want to say while I'm at it, you've worked on a couple of other ones. Yep. We're going to get there. Yeah. 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 I know, just, just, just and, reminding the audience. Yeah. And by the way, is. the book is going to be up. I'm going to, when you see my editing magic, that book will pop up all the time. Ooh. Yeah. But let's see. So you've worked on X-Men, X-Force, New Warriors, Deadpool and Cable and Thunderbolts. Now, have you, did, I think I read somewhere that you learn to read and write based upon comics. So this yeah. is yeah. woven into the psyche of who Fabian is. I mean, this yeah. is, yeah. Completely. I, um, my brother and I, my brother was seven and I was four when we came to this country uh, from Argentina. And some of the first things we recognized on the newsstands, the corner newsstands in Queens, New York, uh, in, in the mid 60s, was Batman and Superman. And um, that that was less because of the Batman TV show that was all the craze here at that time. We, yeah. we, we found that out about that a little later. Um, but but we had been watching um, the Batman and Superman on television in, in Buenos Aires. Um, it was the 1940s Batman serial and the 1950s Superman TV show. That's what was airing on television in, wow. in Argentina. Now, I was four, four and a half, so my memory of a lot of that is a little fuzzy, although I, I do remember it. My brother's is a little better. We just asked our parents, can we get these comics? And they were only 12 cents at the time, and we didn't have much when, my, when we first came here. It took my dad six months to get a job. He was an engineer. It took him six months to get a job before my mother and my brother and I came over. Um, and we just started getting comics, like uh, just a couple of months, because that's all we were kind of allowed to get. And um the first year we were there, so that's between 66 and 67, somebody at my brother's school, as we were learning the language, said to him, you don't want to be reading those comics. You want to be reading these cool comics. And he showed him Spider-Man and Fantastic Four. And my brother wanting to fit in and wanting to be cool, which, yeah. by the way, no one reading comics was considered cool back then. Um, we got Spider-Man and we got Fantastic Four. And that led me to, into Captain America and Avengers. And I became a, an Avengers faithful by 1968 or so when we moved to new jersey um so it was always a part of my life um yeah. it was never the only part of my life but it, it was always an integral part of my life and my brother and i always drew and by the time i was 10 or so i started to write stories and try to draw those stories out with really bad panel to panel storytelling but that was beginning to inform my desire to be a writer and 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 preferably in comics but just to be a writer period because i really had a desire to tell stories yeah well and it, and it begs this question i i was thinking to myself man if i'm if i'm growing up learning to read and write by using comics uh, first of all that's fantastic any way you can learn is a yep. you're learning second yep. of all it's got to color your thought process and your imagination that kind of colors everything that you do. So you're you're looking at the world after a fashion through the lens of comic books, which I find so cool and uplifting at the same time. I mean, yeah, it's, it's not it's like that. If you're if you're drawing the right things from it, it, it it's an, there's an aspirational element to to mainstream superhero stories that 
that tell you to try to do the right thing for the right reasons. And you you won't always do that. You won't always accomplish it. But because it's a monthly periodical publishing cycle, you get another chance next month. You know, so you you apply those lessons to life, and and if you if you make a mistake or if you do the wrong thing, um, you have an opportunity to try to to not to rectify that mistake or to do the right thing next. You know, um, and, and I've always considered myself a cynical optimist, um, and, and that's basically the approach I take to everything in life. You're going to get a lot of sarcasm in my work, but you're almost always going to get a sense of hope for what is going to happen next. That's um, so great even, even when I put my characters through the ringer, um, it, it's always done for the purpose of entertaining a reader, uh, creating drama and conflict in a story, but, but it's never really done out of um, malice towards the character or towards the reader. Yeah. It's interesting because as I was reading this, if I had not known that you had been brought up in the comic world, I certainly wouldn't have had this thought. But knowing that, and as I was reading this, I I was trying to see it almost as its own form of a co- uh, comic, if that makes any sense. And mm-hmm. in, in that it's not comical, it does have moments of comedy, but it's more satirical or sarcastic and uh, flippant, et cetera. But, um, and it did make me, at the end, I'm like, wonder what this would look like uh, if it were uh, turned into a comic. But that notwithstanding. I actually have, I've, I've wanted um, to, to do the prequel to the first book. Uh, which is the main character, Andy Stern, solving um, a serial killer case in, in New York City when she was in college. Um, I, I, I hinted at that whole story in the first book, a little bit in the second, but much more so in the first book. And my goal in my mind is always to do that as a graphic novel. Um, oh. and, 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 I'll, and, you know, hopefully I will get to do it eventually uh, in that format. I just feel like it would be a fun format to do it in. And while you're speaking about that, having a debut novel, Suburban Dicks, being a finalist for the Edgar Award, I want to know what has that, what what did that feel like? What's that been like? Because that's a really huge acknowledgement out of the gate. Yeah, it was kind of cool. I mean, to put it <laughs> as bluntly as possible, it's all been it's all been really cool. It's been a really fun ride. I've had a lot of tremendous ups and lulls never never deep valleys in my career but always uh, um always a lull between the ups um and i've been fortunate because there are plenty of creative people over the course of 35 years that hit rock bottom or disappear or hit valleys they can't climb out of i never my ups have occasionally been really high and my lows have always been in the middle so (laughs) i've been really lucky in that i've been able to earn a living as a professional writer which is a really hard thing to do over the course of 35 years And, and i've part of that is that i always diversified i didn't just do one kind of work i did a lot of work you you would never have heard of um because you're not buying something off the stands but i'm still getting paid to do writing work here you know i did a lot of intellectual property management for hollywood studios and video game companies um and things like that that paid a lot of the bills for for a long time alongside the comic book uh, i always tried writing prose since the late 90s um but i never liked what i wrote it's as simple as that i never yeah. thought it was good enough it, it was um it was always a poor version of someone else's style um 
and around 2017, toward the end of 2017, some of my contemporaries and peers were getting novels published. And, and as, as is often the case with me, the, the main driving force is anger and jealousy. So I used those incredibly positive, noble emotions to fuel my creative fire and say, if I don't try it and finish it, if I don't do one, when now, when am I going to do it? I was turning 58, I think at the time, when am I ever going to do it? Um, and I started writing Suburban Dicks, which is a book I had had in mind since 1995. Um, I'd had the beginning, middle, end, characters, story, everything fleshed out in my head um, since since then. I'd even tried it a couple times, but never got past like 30, 40 pages before I said, this, this is shite. Um, <laughs> and, um, and I started writing it. And it... it I didn't think it was that bad after just 30, 40 pages. So I asked a couple people to read it, um, professionals and non-professionals alike. And every one of them said, this is pretty solid. This is good. Keep going. Yeah. Like, really? And like, yeah. And, I, and that was a bit of a trap because then I didn't have my own excuses to not keep going. Right. So I kept writing um, and I wrote it, Suburban Dicks all through 2018 as a side hustle. Right. It, it had no landing point. It had no destination. Uh, I had an editor at St. Martin's who had told me at New York Comic Con that that October when I had just started working on the manuscript that he'd be happy to take a look at it because he'd been reading my comics since he was 10 years old. And wow. Like, okay. Okay. At least I got an editor at a publishing company that said that they'd take a look at it. That's something. But I had no agent at the time. Nothing. I was mostly just writing it in order to finish it. In order to be able to say, I put the end on a manuscript. Yeah. Um, well, I got to believe that when when you have an editor who's at that level says, hey, I'm interested, it couldn't have been a whole lot of time in between that and you're getting representation, right? Um, well, the representation came from a completely different source. It came through the company I work with in, in Manhattan oh. Freelance a lot called Starlight Runner. I mentioned the Hollywood um the, the movie studio, intellectual property management. Uh, we've done story world development on a lot of big, big feature films with a lot of big, talented directors and stuff. And and it was through them that we had a meeting at UTA about uh, some other stuff. And Suburban Dicks became part of the presentation, um, although we were all on, with the understanding that it's mine, not anyone else's, and that I haven't even finished the manuscript yet. An agent at UTA, Albert Lee, saw the presentation was a part of the whole thing really liked what suburban dick sounded like and told me that when i'm done with the manuscript he'd be he'd be happy to take a look at it and have his team take a look at it so then all of a sudden i got a an, a, an agent a, a, a big agent at a big company who says they're willing to take a look at it and they they agreed to represent me after they read the first draft of the manuscript i had a lot of work still to do it took the book didn't go out to publishers until 2019. Um, so, you know, there was a, almost a year-long process of rewriting, cutting, um, honing, uh, and then uh, Albert took it out in November and multiple publishers wanted to buy it. So it was one of those rare, fun occasions where you get into a, a publisher bidding war. Uh, and all of that's kind of surreal because I originally started out with this not having a clue if, if it would ever even <laughs> sell to anyone, much less be published by a major publisher in hardcover format. 
That's why I love it so much is you didn't have the high expectation, which sometimes kind of queers the deal and kind of boxes you in, right? Whereas if you're yeah, going, hey, let's yeah. see what happens, you're letting the universe kind of do its thing, so to speak. Yeah, uh, I was pretty happy. It was just a, it was a, it was just um, a combination of a lot of things and, and not the least of which is I probably wouldn't have made the sale the same way. 10, 10 to 15 years ago, because even if the book had been exactly the same, because no one on the planet had really heard of Deadpool other than 12 and 13 year olds. So right. everyone has heard of Deadpool now. And when, when, the, when the agent says, I got a book manuscript by the co-creator of Deadpool, there's a lot of humor in it, but there's a lot of other stuff in it too. The editors at the publishing houses, they go, oh, that's interesting. Cause they know that Deadpool is a billion dollar franchise, you know? Um, and that helped get the foot in the door in a way that maybe not would not have happened a while ago. You know how Hollywood and uh, the book industry also will say, hey, describe your book. Oh, it's blank meets blank in a blank kind of world, right? We know yeah. this menu. Yeah. <clears throat> if you were going to describe the self-made widow, how would you say that? Because you just triggered a thought in mind. Okay, it's blank meets blank in a blank kind of world. Yeah, I, I haven't done that. Um, we, we sold the first manuscript for television development way before the book was even published. So I, I never needed to worry about the the, the, the this meets that thing. Right. Um, I, I really just described Self-Made Widow as a, as a sarcastic suburban mystery about unhappy people living very happy lives. Um, <laughs> yeah. And 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 that's ultimately I'm not I'm not looking at combining, you know, oh, it's dead to me meets Columbo. Yeah. Um, although that's not too bad. It, it's monk meets dead to me. You know, I, yeah. I haven't done that. Um, and, and I just um, I, I, I prefer I prefer to hope that it, it stands as its own unique thing in its own unique way. Um, because, I, you know, I've spent my entire career, my entire life playing in other people's sandboxes and, and having work that that you're you're doing that's that's built off the, the backs and the, and the hard work and shoulders of, of people who've worked before you and will be worked on after you by other people. Um, I, I kind of find it a distinct pleasure to have something that is kind of just mine. You know, yeah. it, it, it's not dependent on any. Anything else other than what I want it to be? I got to ask this side question because I can't decide whether you are uh, currently living in an earthquake zone or that laptop is in your lap. It's the laptop. No, it's not in my lap. It's actually on a table, but my foot keeps hitting the bar on the table. <laughs> I, I think I realized it because I saw my water shaking and I was like, wait, that's not the dog moving behind me, is it? No, it's not. It's me doing it. I'm moving my feet away from the table. I am now sitting with my legs spread apart uncomfortably in a chair. Well, I was just getting kind of dizzy because the thing was shaking back and forth. And I'm like, maybe I had too much to drink this morning. No, that's probably just me and my restless leg syndrome. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, as we start talking about the self-made widow, like we haven't already, uh, I, I want to know, and this feels kind of like a silly question, but I'm kind of famous for them. So you'll just have to roll with me. How different is writing comics from writing a mystery thriller fiction? Um, totally different. And, and yet it's still the act of typing words and, and sentences and, and dialogue and things like that. So um, it, it is, a, it is a very different process, but I, I think that, 
my experience in comics really helped me in many aspects of my prose work so far. And the experience I gained in my prose work with my first book really helped me in writing my second book, you know, and I'm sure. hopeful that the experience I gained in my second book will, will hopefully make the third book. If there is a third book, um, really, really kind of, um, uh, a smoother, easier process. Um, but I, I just found that, um, it really helped the comic book writing really helped me understand uh, pacing, uh, structure, uh, having having cohesive and quick chapters that all had the kind of a of an end to the chapter that makes you say, "I hope," makes you say, ah, "Okay, I'll just read one more chapter before sure. turning out the light." Uh, Mission accomplished. Kind of books, yep. Yeah, those are the kinds of books I really enjoy reading myself, where I know I should be turning out the lights because it's twelve twenty or whatever, but I yeah. want to read one more chapter. Um, and, and comics help me in that regard because you you're constrained to a set page limit in comics. You you want to have a bit of a cliffhanger or at least a note at the end that makes the reader vested in wanting to buy the next one, you know, 30 days later. Um, sure. so, so, so that informed a lot of my writing. Um, I was very comfortable with dialogue because I've been writing dialogue for 35 years in comic books. Uh, and di writing dialogue is one of the few things I'm a little bit cold. About. Sorry, that's the dog. I don't even hear it. You're good. Really? You don't hear? Yeah. No, you're good. My son just got her out of the room. Uh, she saw my son come downstairs. Um, um, I, here's what I like about, uh, and I was thinking about the analogy of uh, comics, um, uh, screenplays, and then books, because what I like about writing screenplays, and I just do it as a hobby, is you have to consolidate, you have to go from 400 pages to 120, 110, mm -hmm. And so you have to make the essence of each conversation, the core of the story, while you're not really giving little to any uh, screen direction. And I would think that if you have grown up writing uh, comics that like screenplays, you've had to really perfect that ability to uh, minimize and concentrate so that then when you get to the novel writing, you can expand and then you have all the leisure you want into creating the world outside of that. Yeah. Yes. A hundred percent. It could also, it could also be a dangerous trap trap to fall into also, by the way, you know, um, I, I have come from a, a, a history of having incredibly talented artists draw what you ask them to draw. And you know you can describe a room and they'll draw you a wonderful room. You, you can describe just a couple things in the room that you feel are necessary touches, but they're going to do the rest of the work. You know, um, in, in a book, you can spend three pages describing the interior of a room, but is that really worthwhile? Is that really a vested amount of space for your reader and your story? Um, I bring up the example, which is, really sacrilegious of me to do because it's Stephen King and Stephen King is, is freaking genius. Right. right. Um, but I reread the stand about a year ago and I hadn't read the stand in, in probably 15, 20 years. I've read it a couple of times, right. He spends pages describing the interior of a room or the interior of a house. And it's a location we're never going to see again in the book because it's in Nebraska and everyone's already past Nebraska. They're already where they're going to end up, you know, heaven and hell. Um, and, and I'm reading this and I'm saying, I, I kind of get it already. Okay. I don't need 
three pages of description of a single room. Um, I'm not that kind of a writer. I don't want to be that kind. Of writer. I, I don't. I don't. Um, I don't uh, necessarily um, swim in the pool of words because it's fun to loll around in and splash in. You know, um, I, I'm kind of like um, the Michael Phelps of writing. I want to dive in the pool and get the damn other side quickly. Um, <laughs> and and, um, and that's that's kind of how I approach the work. I I, I have things I want to say, but I, I don't want to, um, I, I hope I don't want to um, take too long to say, them. you know, I don't want to yeah. overstay my welcome on the page. Right. You know, I, you're making me think of someone I used to read that I really liked, and it's a sign of the times, and that was Thomas Wolfe. And I used to get oh, yeah, off, yeah. you know, yeah. so I used to love that, yeah. that description and that languorous setup. And that was high school. Uh, and now... I'm like, come on, go get, get moving, you know, chop, yeah. chop. We got to get part of that is part of that is I'm reading just a vast amount of material for the show. Part of it is a shortening attention span. Part of it is life gets in the way and you got, all you got shit it. to do. Yeah. So, yeah. But, um, but all, and, and part of it is what you said. It's a sign of the times um, we have as, as a society um, it speeded up the process of information absorption. Yeah. So we want everything. And, and look, it started with Sesame Street. Thank you very much. It started when television broadcasts were going to be half hour shows. You, you're, you're imposing and creating more and more structural limitations on the presentation of the content. Books was one of the few formats of entertainment which could be as languid as they wanted to be. But it's hard to be as languid as an author may want to be if the reader doesn't want to be that languid. Right. Yeah. If the reader's entire stimuli is all predicated on moving a little bit faster, then they're going to want to move a little bit faster. And it's understandable. You know, um, I watch sometimes I'll watch an old show from the 70s or the 80s and you're mind boggled by the, the pace and yeah. how like how long it took something to happen in a scene. And things are so much quicker now uh, in the presentation of our content. Oh my goodness! It's funny you should say that. Uh, my wife Tammy and I were watching a movie. We 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 uh, we were you know we get all this great content all the time, and we said, "Hey, let's go old school. Let's pull up an old movie." And I'm trying to remember what it was. I don't want to badmouth it, but it was set in the oh, geez, I think it was like just the '80s, and and we're sitting there going, "Come on, come on, come on, get come on!" And just the way yeah. they set it up, and yeah. I got it that you're yeah. in trouble. I got yeah, it. Yeah. You're in the country. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, Fabian is going to tell us what it's like growing up in New Jersey and how that has affected his storytelling. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Fabian Nisiasa. Nis and I'm going to mess. Yeah. Give me. Not help me. Huh? Nisiasa. Nisiasa. Just for everyone in the audience, we went over this before the show we did. started. <laughs> we did. And you'd think I'd get it straight. And we but both knew. We both knew that it wasn't going to go well. It wasn't going to go well. But you know what? That's the thing about me. I, I, you can, If you could reach through the camera, you could slap me. Um, My attitude is, though, Dave, you don't need to say it. You just need to read it. That's all that matters that, to me. <laughs> just read it, folks. Anyway. Just read it. All right. So you grew up in Jersey, which is a story in and of itself. But I love this. You know, uh, I've got more friends that have grown up around Jersey. And there's a 
there's such a great um, mental attitude about life. It's just, uh, I don't want to use the phrase bada bing, but it is so much bada bing. And it's just get to the point and be real and be who you are. And I love that about you. Whereas in the South where I grew up, now we'll, you know, we'll talk nice to you, but there might be a chance we pretty much hate your guts, but yeah, you're yeah, not going to yeah. know it, you know? <laughs> Um, but in Jersey, I'm from Jersey, I'm from Jersey. We're going to know it. <laughs> yeah. You're going to know it. Yeah. So the characters are, uh, rife with that kind of attitude. So I want to, I want you to talk about, um, you know, it is a serious mystery. It's also a fun read peppered with amusing, quirky characters. So I got to believe you got neighbors in your vortex <laughs> Not that I'm willing to name. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, the the a lot of the characters in the first two books are um, not based on people that have that I've known or have been in my life, but pieces of everyone that I have known or I'm friends with find their ways into the construction of a character. Um, yeah. Especially, certainly for the book process, much more so than I ever needed to worry about in comics because comics is already heightened reality you know when you're telling superhero stories um this needed to be exaggerated reality but not overly heightened right so i wanted to take aspects of of um of people uh in order to form the characters that were an individual's more exaggerated aspect you know, it's right. not who they are 24 hours a day, but they get angry real quick. OK, I'm going to use that because getting angry real quick is fun, a fun device for a character. Right. Um, in the second book, uh, Andy's middle child, Sarah, has a breath holding spell. And if you're a parent who knows what a breath holding spell is, you're going to totally get it. And if you're not, you're going to go, holy crap, are you serious? That's based on my son who had breath holding spells when he was young. And, and until the age of four or so, he would have breath holding spells. And it's um, an internal ang anxiety and anger mechanism that literally shuts off the oxygen supply to your brain and knocks you unconscious for four seconds or so. And then you wake up a little groggy and you're fine and you grow out of it. A lot. All, most all kids grow out of it. My son grew out of it by the time he was four or so. But um it, it it created a tremendous. I mean, it first happened, of course, it created a tremendous amount of anxiety because it was sure. like, what the hell is going on? Um, right. But 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 after, as with all parents with kids, after it's happened a few times, it's just kind of entertaining and amusing. So you know, if, if you're walking in a park and your son having having a, a a little toddler fit because they wanted to go in a different direction and you're walking this way, yeah. you just keep walking. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you turn around, look behind you, and you don't see your son. And you're like, oh, we just he collapsed on the ground and the, the grass is tall. So you literally couldn't see him. You oh, look, Billy passed out again. Yeah. <laughs> my old my oldest daughter go who goes, he did it again. Yeah. <laughs> so so I incorporated that into the book because it's just it's just a fun, real moment that, yeah. that I could apply to in this case, the characters themselves. And like Kenny, the, the, the secondary lead has never seen this happen in his life. And he's only 30 years old. So, and he has no kids of his own. So of course he's just gonna like, like <laughs> be completely flummoxed by this going on, much less everyone else being so calm about it. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I, I take things like that in the first book, um, Andy, Andy Stern, the main character is, um, seven months pregnant. 
and she's really short and she's incredibly pregnant. And I really did base it after a friend of mine who in 94, 95 was pregnant uh, with her first kid. And she's really short. And I did watch her get out of a minivan. And I described it in the book, in the first book, as like an egg yolk oozing out of a car, because that's that's what it looked like. And and I love her. And and it is what it is. She, yeah. So that's, that's what it looked like to me. So that's how I described it in the book. And that's a 30-year-old memory almost, you know, 29-year-old memory for me. See, but this is, again, what I love about Jersey. You just, I calls it as I sees it, as my friend yeah, Joey. Yeah, yeah, look, um, I haven't had any friends who have uh, noticed uh, noticed enough of themselves in any of the characters to call me out on it, which yeah. means I did a really good job of disguising their truth and or they're really oblivious to their own truth, one or the other, right? Um, Maybe and, a little bit of both. I think it's a little bit of both, but I'm probably more the latter. Um, I've, I've never been surprised by by people who are incapable of seeing the truth of themselves. Uh, I, I tend to be pretty honestly blunt about my my own defects. Um, so so I, 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 I it was really um, it was really easy for me to just draw from real life and and use that to create fiction. The, all the aspects and elements of, of the commute into Manhattan and the train station in the first book more so, but still in the second book as well. That's all part and parcel of my life. I commuted to Manhattan for work for decades, you know, yeah. um, I, 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 the train station is near my house. I hear the train whistle all the time, you know, things like that. Um, it, it, the, the, the driveway with the apron at the bottom of your car scrapes when you're hitting it, sure. that was the apron in my driveway at my old house happened all the time, you know? So, um, I just try to incorporate all of those, um, seeming banalities that make up our day to day. Yeah. Uh, because I think that that's part and parcel to the themes of the book I'm writing, which is these murder mysteries that are really, uh, being told to use an entertaining way of holding a mirror up to our own flaws and, and the constructs we've created in our lives. Um, I have been a creature of the suburbs my entire life. I'm not a huge fan of the suburbs, <laughs> but here I am, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and I like, I like to, to, I like to shine a mirror on, on our own fallacies as often as I can. And speaking of shine in a mirror, you're getting your money's worth because you're the only person that uh, on this show in the last year that we've had the show uh, celebrating our uh, into our second year now that has uh, pitched both of their books nearly equally. So good on you. Oh, really? I have, <laughs> oh, yeah. I have yeah. no idea how that's happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it be- yeah, yeah. <laughs> So it begs, he's holding both books. So it begs the question, uh, when is number three and it will, will it be, well, it won't be a series per se. I'm guessing, uh, right? I look, it, it, it was a two book contract. Uh, okay. I, I spoke earlier about the auction for the first book and multiple publishers wanting it. The benefits of that is that it led to a two book deal. Um, the, the side effect is that they're going to want to see if the, the, if they make enough money off of the two books to justify wanting to do more books. Right. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a catch 22. I got a, a really great deal for my first two books and it was exciting as hell to do that and, and, and make more money and sell and, and, and get to write two books. But the drawback is then that the books have to sell enough that the publisher thinks that the investment is worth it. Um, and that's the stage we're at right now because the second book just came out a month ago. 
so, so the publisher is active. I, I spoke to my editor last week and he's a great editor. He's a great guy. I, I, I come from publishing. I understand the business side of it. Um, I worked at Berkeley Publishing, Berkeley Putnam Publishing when I got out of college. So one of the reasons I wanted to go with Putnam is because that was the company I worked for out of college originally uh, before I started working at Marvel. Um, I get I get their end of it. Uh, I want to keep writing more books. I would like it to be with Putnam because they're a very distinguished publisher. Um, if it's not with Putnam, maybe it'll be with someone else. But I, I think that the characters have legs. I think that the stories that I want to tell um, have have impact and resonance on on people who are who are reading them. The reviews and the response to the books has been really, really strong. Readers enjoy them. Uh, so my Goodreads amalgamation scores are really, really high. Um, so I write to entertain people. And secondarily, I write to try to say something about the world we live in. I got a lot of stories with these characters that I'd like to keep doing, you know, telling because I sure. think I could do both. Sure. Um, I got to put a pause. One second. Don't move. All right, evidently we have a delivery at the front door, so we're going to take this time to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk to Fabian about what it's like to be in intellectual property development and management. Sounds so impressive, and he's just a guy to talk about it. Stay with us. David Temple here for the Thriller Zone, and I want to say a very big warm welcome to Warwick's Bookstores. They're based in La Jolla, California. They are a family-run bookstore unlike any I've seen maybe ever. Talking about customer service, quality products, vast array of books, including autograph books. I mean, they really have it all. My single favorite thing, and it's the one thing that is lacking in today's society, uh, in my opinion, exceptional customer service. How often do you get to say, hey, I went to shopping at so-and-so. Their customer service is amazing. That's what you're going to find at Warwick's Bookstore. Now, if you're not in the San Diego area, you can, of course, shop for them online at warwicks.com. Warwick's is the country's oldest continuously family-owned and operated bookstore. You're thinking, that can't be true. That's got to be oodles of them. Only one. Oh, one of my favorite things, they have signed book author events. This is where I discovered in person Don Winslow, Jack Carr, Meg Gardner. These big authors that we admire so much share their story, read from their books. You can get autographed copies right there. You want to shop for a gift? And you can do it online. That's what I'm talking about. You can actually go to their website, warwicks.com. I can't say enough nice about them. And of course, thank you, Warwicks, for believing in this show and being one of our prime sponsors. Let me ask you something. How many times have you built a website or thought about building a website or hired someone to build a website that you thought, this is going to be it? Oh, it's going to be spectacular. And it's okay for a while, and it's kind of pretty, but it soon breaks, or gets hacked, or falls apart. Or how about this? The kid that you hired to build it holds your material hostage asking for more money. Yeah, all of those things have happened to me in the past. And I was a website builder at one time. AuthorBytes.com is a hosting company that does things right. Rock solid, 99.999% uptime, and 24-hour security that keeps your website protected. You've heard me talk about AuthorBytes.com for some time now. I wouldn't talk about them if I didn't believe in them. Are they perfect? Pretty darn close. 
Are they super cheap? Maybe not the cheapest, but I'll tell you something. For me and a lot of the other authors you've heard talk about here on the show, being dependable is so important. AuthorBytes.com has a special offer. If you use the code THETHRILLERZONE and sign up for a one-year contract, check this out. You'll get the first three months free. That's a company that stands behind their products. Sign up for a one-year contract, get the first three months free using the code THETHRILLERZONE. Trust me, you'll be very happy. That's authorbytes.com. Your favorite authors, the Thriller Zone. And now back to the show. There is something I want to swing back around to because you mentioned this and, and, and I find it fascinating for some particular reason. How does one become an intellectual property consultant like you have with so many uh, Hollywood franchises. I mean, that that's that's no easy task. Is that because of just uh, time in the business, history in the business, or no? It, it was um, it, it was a bit of a coincidental happenstance that uh, happened to a, a friend of mine that led to a business. Um, he, and my friend Jeff Gomez uh, worked for me as an editor at Acclaim Comics when I ran that company in the late '90s. He went off on his own to start his own company called Starlight Runner Entertainment. Um, he had pitched uh, a property to Disney Adventures magazine, which was doing comic book material in their magazine back in the uh, early aughts. Um, and he created a Bible for the book, for the for the um, comic series. And he's really, really anal about continuity and detail and, and, and canon and structuring stuff. Um, not just giving you a, a little handbook about the character and their powers, but giving you uh, the themes of a, of a property and a, and a character, their archetypes. Uh, is he a jester? Is he, you know, is he a magician? Is all these different characters wow. that exist? So he presented all of that for Go Riser, the property he pitched Disney Publishing, and and um, we had already been doing some work uh, for Hot Wheels for Mattel. We did a whole big program for Mattel for Hot Wheels around 2002, 2003. Um, but Go Riser followed up on that, and someone at Disney marketing in their feature film division happened to was waiting for a meeting to begin and happened to see that Bible sitting in someone's inbox. And she started flipping through it and she, it was only about 25, 30 pages, yeah. but it was 25, 30 pages for like an eight page story. He was selling, trying to sell. All right. So she said, this is exactly what we need internally on pirates of the Caribbean because the movie had just come out. It was a huge success and no one at Disney understood why it was a huge success. And they reached out to us and contacted us and said, can you do this kind of thing for Pirates of the Caribbean? And we said, of course we could. Of course. Could or not, but of course we could. And and it turned into a 10 year business. Um, in that we, we, we did franchise management. It's really not intellectual property consulting. It's really franchise management. Okay. You have, you have a franchise that you really don't understand or is a little unwieldy, too big. You can't control it. We, we're, we're not the nerds you want. We're the nerds you need. <laughs> we, we come in and, and we would help, help hone it, sculpt it, define it. Uh, make uh, make you understand your characters, make you understand your story world, make you understand your themes and your archetypes, um, give you story story 
springboards where you can go from here as possibilities. Um, and, and we did that for Pirates of the Caribbean, Prince of Persia, Tron for Disney, Amazing Spider-Man and Men in Black for Sony, uh, James Cameron's Avatar movie back way before it even came out. Yeah, we were on set during motion capture in like 2008 or something. I don't even remember. Um, and, and, and meeting with Cameron and talking, discussing it with him. Um, and now with the, when the next movie comes out is when I'm finally going to be able to get to see some of the stuff that we worked on 12 years, and years. Um, worked on Transformers for Hasbro. Uh, uh, there's a bunch more than Halo for Microsoft. Uh, there's a whole bunch. And all of these were really big jobs. They're like year long projects and it's hundreds and hundreds of pages of content. Um, and, and it was, it was a really good, good part of the gig. Like uh, the way I always describe freelance writing life is you got a bunch of buckets in your floor and you got to make sure that the roof leaks enough water into each one of them. <laughs> and some years, some years the roof is going to leak more in one bucket than another other years. You know, it's going to be yeah. the reverse. You just got to make sure that you get enough water in each bucket that, that you can pay the bills, feed the family, who plan for a college tuition? Yeah, those two words alone, college tuition. You know, and um, and and that's what I've really done. That's why I've never focused my career on just one thing. I may be better known for one thing, which is the comic book work I've done. Right. But, but I've done lots of, you know, yeah. and and it's just part of natural curiosity too. Not just about making a living. It's also about being curious about different formats, different storytelling approaches, different audiences to reach for. Yeah. Things like that. Well, it's it brings to mind a phrase that I have used that I used so much when I was pitching my first novel as a as a movie, and that was diversification of risk. So if you can buy, if I can put to get pull together five scripts from me and my buddies, and we go to investors for blank amount of money, then the diversification of risk is more palatable to the investor, as they can see. Well, if you got five projects, at least one in five is probably going to hit. Two might do a soft hit, but if three completely lose it, you know, we're not completely out of versus putting all your, you know, yeah. red, and, red and 36. Look, it was, uh, I, I realized that when I was really, really young, I started writing for Marvel Comics when I was like 26, 27 years old. Jeez. Um, and, and I had a full-time job there, but that's when I sold my first story. And, and I knew I was taking the place of a generation of the generation of writers who came before me. And I knew the generation of writers who came before me had taken the place of the generation that came before them. So I knew that there'd be a generation taking over for me. It was yeah. maybe, maybe it was a matter of 10 years, hopefully 20. Um, I never thought that I'd, I'd make a consistent enough living just as a comic book writer yeah. to justify being a professional writer, you know? Um, and, and once you're committed to that lifestyle, you have to make sure that you're earning enough on a yearly basis to, to live in, in our capitalist society. You yes. To, you know? Um, and, and that's that I, I made that decision by the late nineties, early aughts to really try to diversify the, the kinds of work I was looking to do. So I've done animation Bibles, uh, the, the, my first animated series that I developed came out the same a couple months before Suburban Dicks did. It was a Stan Lee's superhero kindergarten with Arnold Schwarzenegger as the lead, the lead voice. Um, and, and it streamed on an app called Cartoon Channel. Um, and they filmed an entire season worth of episodes. I didn't write any of the episodes because I didn't I don't want to write cartoons for four year old kids. But right. I developed the entire thing. I developed all the characters, the setting, everything, wow. you know. Um, and I'm credited on it as series, you know, series developer. 
And that happened, that happened at the age of when I was the year I was turning 60 at the same time as my first novel was coming out for, you know, an adult mystery novel a couple months later. So right now I'm, I'm in the game playing a middle reader graphic novel proposal yeah. that, that we've already had one publisher discussion we're going to have more and, and that's that's a completely different thing for me too because even though i've written a thousand comics i've never done this kind of a book for this kind of an audience um specifically and i've always wanted to i got pitches that i made to marvel back in 92 93 which really was archie's set in the marvel universe you know and it went nowhere because marvel didn't do those kinds of books back right. then they barely do them now um, so, so I've always had the inclination to do different kinds of things. I just didn't always have the platform under which I felt comfortable. I could, I could drop it on, but here I am turning 61 at the end of this year. And, and I'm going to sell a middle reader graphic novel to somebody this year, you know, nice. <laughs> and that's all, that, that's all good. You know, it's all fine. If, if I write my first TV script when I'm 65, I'm fine with that too. Yeah, uh, something tells me that'll happen. By the way, do not let me forget. I have a very specific question I want to ask you, but I want to do it off uh, off mic when we're done because it's you you have such a vast knowledge, and I think you could answer a question that could really help me understand something. So, okay. but but before we get to our rapid fire questions, as we wrap, because I know I'm on a time crunch with you, and you got a lot of places to be, I would want to ask as we wrap up uh, what I ask all my authors: their favorite piece of writing advice. And this, and my listeners include both seasoned and beginner authors, so I know they're going to be anxious to hear yours, even though you've only you're only on two books in, but you're a thousand comics in. So, best piece of writing advice? My my single best piece of writing advice to mostly non-professionals, but it, it, it applies to professionals too, is, is to write. Just write. Don't stop writing. But, but be smart about the kinds of writing you choose to do if you want to be a published author. There's two different kinds of writing. There's writing because you want to write and need to write, and there's writing because you want to write, need to write, and have to earn a living doing it. You know, and, yeah. and 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 there's nothing wrong with either one of those. Um, if you want to just be a writer for the sake of writing, and uh, then that's fine. Just write. And and following that up is is never be afraid to let people read it, because ultimately, I, I don't know how how rewarding a writing experience it is if you're only writing for yourself. Right. You know, Um the reason we tell stories is because we want those stories to be heard, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so even if you're writing non-professionally for yourself, always try to get people to read your work. Always get feedback. The only way you're going to improve is if you're not doing it in a vacuum. Uh, so, so always hear what people have to say about the work because that's part and parcel of the creative process. If you're going to put yourself out there, if you're going to have the audacity to think that you have a story that is worthy of being told, then you have to accept that a listener or a reader is going to have their own opinion and interpretation on that story you told. Yeah. I wish I had gotten that piece of advice when I started writing about 10 years ago and I was just writing kind of for myself or what I think, oh, this will be cool. 
Um, because if I had had beta readers at that time, they would have said, yeah, this is cool, but I've seen it before. Or, yeah, this could use some more help here. Um, so that's great advice because if you're having uh, uh, people give you input, and I'm not talking about readers, writers group. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking yeah. about trusted individuals that you go, you know what, you're a seasoned reader and you know what good story is, so you might shed some light on my story. So good, yep. good advice. And the other aspect of it is we live in a day that you can have a hundred people receive your work with the push of a button, yeah. which wasn't always the case 30, 40 years ago. We don't need to run photocopies and staple them and hand the paper to people and have them read it. You know, you, you can disseminate your content really, really easily and quickly. Um, and, and as a result of that, though, I also want another piece of advice is never take for granted the audience you're asking to read your work. Don't, don't, demand upon them that they have to read a 400 page manuscript you know your right. magnum opus 800 page fantasy novel because because that, that that's a lot to expect of them uh so either provide it in chapters or chunks a little at a time and build and grow it or or try writing shorter content try writing short yeah. stories um and, and because that's less imposing on a reader's time and you need the you need that reader feedback so so do it for them as much as you do it for yourself. And I was going to say a great tool that a lot of my listeners know about, and that is reading uh, book funnels, for instance. So if I want to grow my email list, let's say, for instance, and I want to get you in touch with me and get part of my newsletter, I might give you uh, one of my novellas or a short story. And that will do two things. One, it gives you something free. We work together. Secondly, it gives me some instant feedback of like if I'm just completely missing the mark, right? So that's great advice. All right, it is time for our rapid fire questions. And this is just some fun little uh, silliness uh, that we do. And that is this. You wake up one day to find yourself locked in um, in the world of a real life comic. All right, so you, you, you've, you've woken up, you're in a real life comic. How or what is your char uh, character and why? Who, who is your character? What is your character and why? Okay, if, if I'm going to be in a real world comic, um, then I will probably choose to be Hercules from Marvel's continuity because he lives on Olympus and he's a demigod who can kick ass. He drinks like a fish and he has thousands of adoring, fawning men and women all over him. So why would I, why would I want to be Batman or why would I want to be Spider-Man whose lives are 80% miserable? Why would I want to be Captain America who always has to be responsible? I, I'll, I will be Hercules because he can relax and party a lot. Okay. That's great. <laughs> Question two, you and the family are prepping for a cross country road trip and you're in charge of the music. It could be audiobook also or podcast entertainment. What are a couple, just a couple of your top picks? Um, oh, geez, that's a tough one because I stopped listening to the music regularly a long time ago. Really? Um, Why is that? Um, I don't. I don't know. I, in the mid '90s, I just started to drift from it, and and I've I've i picked it back up a little bit in the last several years, but not enough. Um, I just I just kind of stopped listening. I stopped hearing things that I felt were new and interesting to me. Gotcha. And as a result, I lost touch to such a point. I never really listened to my kids' music. They, they're, they're, now that they're adults, they're mad at me that I never introduced them to my music. And it was hard because that was a weird time. It was transitioning from LPs 
the, sure. the CDs and we, we, anyway, yeah. um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put on like sports talk radio and hear them all yell at me because I have sports talk radio on. That's what's going to end up happening. Okay. They're all going to have their earbuds in and they're going to yeah. be listening to all the things they want to listen to. <laughs> all right. Fair enough. <laughs> Question three. What are you reading when you're not working on novels and or comics? Uh, I'm usually reading novels and or comics. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I, I, I just finished a, a, a book. Actually, my laptop is kind of resting on it. I just finished a book yesterday uh, um, that was a, a, a bit of a, a island chase thriller. Um, and and I'll, I'll start a new book in the next day or so. I just read uh, three of uh, S.A. Cosby's books, which I like tremendously. Um, the book I just finished was The Island by Adrian McKinty. I was going to um, guess that. When you said island, I'm like, it's got to be yeah. either uh, Adrian McKinty or uh, Sarah Pierce's uh, The Retreat, okay. one or the other. And, yeah. And, and um, I'm reading a, a Marvel comic on a digital hoopla app. And I'm reading an old um, Marvel Masterworks edition. Marvel Masterworks is a series of hardcover books they've been doing for 30 years that reproduces old comics. And um, I'm reading what, what's in my Marvel Masterworks edition right now. Uh, I'm losing um, my train of oh, Black Panther. It's the third Black Panther volume. So gotcha. I read little bits. I read little bits from all of it. You're um, snacking. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm a snacker. Okay. Fair enough. Fourth and final, the self-made widow has just been greenlit by Hollywood. If you were to, yes, if you were to have anything to say about it, who would you choose to play FBI profiler Andrea Stern and who'd play Kenny Lee, her sidekick? I, I, I cannot say because the Suburban Dicks book was optioned for television development. It has been in active development. Um, there, there has not been the kind of progress we were hoping there would be um so <laughs> chances are pretty good that um that the, the the books will will be optioned for continued development again at a certain point so i'd rather not say i have uh i have an a i had an act actor in mind for andy and i think she's almost kind of um starting to outgrow the role a bit uh, i have a, another actor in mind for andy but I can't say because it's not fair if the, if it happens and that person isn't the one. I, I got a bit of um got a bit of a a, a bind I'm under because I I already cast Ryan Reynolds as Deadpool, so oh. that's a pretty high bar yeah. to start with. So got I want to make sure that I don't say anything publicly that's not going to meet that high standard that I've set for myself. Holy as moly! A, as a Hollywood yeah. casting agent here in New Jersey. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'll tell well, you offline, though. I do have an actress in mind. Okay. I'll tell you offline. Okay. Uh, and you're going to fill in the blank when I get ready to say this. Folks, to learn more, visit the website FabianNiciesa.com. Thank you. And follow him on Twitter at Fabian Niciesa. And on Instagram <laughs> it's same, at... It's the same every single time, David. It's amazing. <laughs> Uh, thank you for letting me have some fun with that. My pleasure, David. Thank you. <laughs> no, this was a hoot. I, I wish you had given some thought, some deeper thought to it, because you you really were kind of shy and laid back, and I felt like I had I to usually, pull everything out. Yeah, it's it's a problem I tend to have is that I'm too timid and quiet. Yeah, that is. But seriously, dude, this was <laughs> a lot of fun. My wife just gave me a look as she was leaving the room. <laughs> she wanted to kill me. Yeah. <laughs> and how long have you guys been uh, buckled together? 
426 years. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, God. <laughs> we, 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 we first dated in 1528, and we, <laughs> um, we, we have... We we have been together since uh, I was 19 and she was 17. Wow! We worked at the same movie theater in East Brunswick, New Jersey. Good and, uh, for you. And I was a sophomore in college and she was a senior in high school. We started wow. dating and have been together ever since. Wow! So, Good for and, you. Uh, look, the 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 house Andy Stern lives in is the house that she and I had between '93 and 2001, and the house Kenny Kenny Lee lives in is the house I lived in from 2001 to 2014. Um, so I, I literally used used what I knew to write the books. I was um, just although, getting ready to say the Andy's marriage to Jeff is nothing like my marriage to her. Um, yeah. she tolerates me far better than Andrea tolerates Jeff. <laughs> Fabian, once again, dude, thank you so much for the gift of your time. I'm I'm running out of time, but I just I, this was such thank a thank you very much, David. It's been a pleasure to be on the show. I wish they were all this fun, dude. Uh, I appreciate it. Thank you. It was actually really really fun. It was a, you 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 are very good at this. Thank um, you, thank you. And and I feel as if my ass was squeezed, so it's even better. <laughs> well, next time I see you, I'll make sure I do just that. <laughs> it, it, it felt like mild sexual harassment without even the sexual harassment. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I look forward to being able to do this again for whatever project we get a chance to talk about. Okay. I would, I would be honored. Thank you, Fabian. Thank you, David. Take see you, care. buddy. Thanks once again to Fabian Nicieza. And the book is The Self-Made Widow. This coming Thursday, Sarah Pierce is the author of The Retreat. Now, she came to fame with, um, I think it was the sanatorium. Uh, Yes, and Reese's Book Club chose her as one of the books of the month. Well, I'm going to say this. It shoots out of the gate, does not let you catch your breath for pages and pages and pages. So you're going to really enjoy this. Cannot wait to hear that lovely accent of hers. In the meantime, I want to say thank you to my sponsors, Warwick's Bookstores in La Jolla and online at warwicks.com. They're our new sponsor, and they are wonderful people. And also authorbytes.com, the builder of my website, David Temple Books, and the builder of many other websites you've heard me mention on the show. Thank you both for being a part of the sponsorship. I'm David Temple, your host, and I'll see you next time for another edition of The Thriller Zone. The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.